in the names of God, creator, redeemer, sustainer. Amen. Now among those who went to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We are now nearing the end of the first month of the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. While there are glimmers of better times ahead with vaccinations continuing in their piecemeal, stuttering rollout, we have to acknowledge that the end of this pandemic is not on our horizon. We can continue to be numbed or shocked or outraged as the death count continues to climb. We can affirm that more than half a million of our fellow citizens have died of COVID-19. As part of my job at the two hospitals where I now work, I hear the daily litany of new cases, transmission rates, deaths, numbers of people vaccinated, where on the queue of people waiting for vaccines we have reached. It has all become part of the way I live and work. A long, slow process of acclimation to what should have been unthinkable. And then something comes along that rouses me from the day-to-dayness, the shuffling torpor of our current way of being. A study released roughly 10 days ago shows that one out of five Americans has lost someone in their family or their circle of friends to COVID-19. One out of five. If you live in a community of color, that number climbs to one out of three. When I heard this, somehow some very incarnate reality of this pandemic pressed in on me. We can each think of where we fit in that fellowship of death, but it means that dozens of people we know, perhaps we ourselves, stumble through these days with a loss really like no other, given the isolation and separation this pandemic has forced on us. People die without loved ones at their bedside. The last view of those loved ones may well be on a screen. And any words of comfort offered by a nurse or a doctor are said through masks and behind goggles. This is what one in five, one in three means. Rabbi Jesus knew death. He spoke about it all the time. It took the death of his friend Lazarus to get him to weep over a death. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The third surge has emerged in Europe and we would do well to pay attention to what our brothers and sisters there are learning. Part of this appears to be the greater troubles the European Union has in getting vaccination campaigns started. Part of it has been the mercantile nature of vaccine production and sales. Part of it may be the emergence of a new strain of the virus, a constant fear of physicians and epidemiologists. But what it looks like is this. The massive Paris hospital system, Les Hôpitaux de Paris, Assistance Publique, is the largest in Europe with 44 hospitals, 16,000 physicians, and 90,000 total employees. Last Thursday, that entire system had 15 remaining intensive care unit beds not occupied. And the system had to contemplate whether it would invoke what we euphemistically call crisis standards of care. That is, deciding between two patients who gets a scarce resource and who gets put on a general ward for comfort measures only not because they want them, but because someone has had to decide 
that they do not get the care that might save their life because someone else is rated as more likely to benefit and benefit sooner. It is a way of making decisions that are not engaged in determining the best interests of the individual patient, but rather the best use of resources so that a society or a system at a risk of foundering can have enough people survive so that it can go on. I've been in discussions at the hospitals where I work about how we would implement them here should it come to that. I've had discussions about choosing the triage officers who would make those decisions and how they would be charged with their duties. It is, I found, the valley of the shadow of death. It is a place no one, absolutely no one, ever wants to go. A massive system teetered on the brink of that last week. It looked into the chasm. Years ago, I met one of the physicians who now directs the ICU in one of the largest hospitals, the Salpetriere. He is profoundly kind, deeply compassionate, and incredibly smart. I can only imagine what was going on in his head and his heart last Thursday. Father, save me from this hour. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Last week, several colleagues of mine published some of the first work regarding outcomes in children with COVID-19 who developed respiratory failure. That is, children who had a presentation of COVID-19 that was rather comparable to serious COVID-19 infections in adults. Earlier in this pandemic, much attention was focused on a uniquely pediatric illness seen as a complication of COVID-19, an inflammation of the blood vessels which afflicts multiple different organs. This disorder was so mesmerizing and novel that at most large pediatric facilities in this country, it took attention away from those children who were showing a more typical pattern of COVID-19 illness. This was the first systematic investigation across the largest children's hospitals in the country. While it should not have been surprising, I suppose, that children also get lung disease from COVID-19, the more salient finding of the study was who those children are. Children of color, had a higher likelihood of serious lung disease and a higher likelihood of bad outcomes from that lung disease than did white children. At this moment, there are no specific biologic factors which could explain this. We can, however, say that the effects of the structural racism in our society and our healthcare system trickle down and afflict even the youngest. Jesus was singularly fond of children and especially the children of the poor and the marginalized. When he left, he entrusted them, he entrusted their care and protection to us. I would submit that as a people and as a system, we have failed in that trust. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. A pandemic is, is exceptionally good at demonstrating every fault line, every crack, every defect in our society. Like water sleeping, seeping into the cleavage planes and crevices, of a granite boulder. It sits, then freezes, then thaws, and finally the boulder is split asunder. Racism, especially structural racism, is a foundational sin of our society. It arrived when the continent was first invaded by Europeans. It took root and it has flourished. And like most notorious sins, we seem so inured to its existence, we scarcely recognize its many manifestations. We take as commonplace 
that a leader of the Republic in its Senate says that he wasn't afraid of the violent insurrectionists that invaded the Capitol and went hunting for some of the people they thought had stolen the election because he thought they were fundamentally good people who cared about their country. He would be afraid, he said, to be close to any of the Black Lives Matter marches of the last year because those people are angry militants and you just never know about them. A white man goes on a shooting rampage in Atlanta, and all but one of his victims are Asian women. He claims that he was trying to resist the temptation he felt as a man addicted to sex so he could stay pure and true to his religious beliefs. He drove by three establishments that also offered the same sorts of services that he found so provocative and objectionable, but were staffed by white women. And when he was apprehended, our newspapers of record chose not to call this terrorism, and our law enforcement agencies say that an investigation will be needed to determine what his motivation had been. I would note that a group of armed men of Muslim ancestry attacked a satirical magazine in Paris that had published cartoons they thought were sacrilegious and defamed the Prophet Muhammad. They were not offered the same consideration. Jesus was maddeningly quiet on any of a number of topics many people who profess to follow him find central to their belief system. Certain aspects of reproductive health care or matters of sexual orientation, for instance. He was abundantly clear, however, on the utter necessity of loving one's neighbor, not taking retribution and justice into our imperfect human hands, and caring for the least among us if we wished to be called his followers. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. If we crawl out from the rubble of this pandemic, we will be given an opportunity to determine what sort of a people we now wish to be. As a community of faith, it is imperative that we have a voice in that conversation. We are admonished to serve by following the example of Jesus. For what then will we be witnesses? One of my favorite stories from nearly Hasidic masters may be apocryphal, but I love its message. A rabbi asks his students one day, how do you know when the dawn is breaking? One of his students, thought of as the wisest, pondered this for a moment and then said, Rabbi, I think it is the moment when there is enough light to tell a sheep from a goat. The rabbi shook his head, no, that is not the answer. Another one of his students, thought of as the most pious, said, Rabbi, I think it is the moment when there is enough light to tell an oak tree from a pine tree. The rabbi shook his head, no, that's not the answer. From the back of the group, a student thought of as the most foolish, said with a bit of a stammer, Rabbi, I think the dawn is breaking when you look in the face of another person and can only see a brother or a sister. The rabbi smiled. Jesus left us with any number of parables and stories, examples and mighty acts of power. His instructions were relatively few. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And everyone is your neighbor, everyone. The people we like and the people we can't stand. The people with whom we agree and the people with whom we are in profound disagreement. The good and the bad the cowardly and the brave, the guilty and the innocent, the people I love and the people who frighten me. They are all my neighbor. And he left us with the admonition that everyone we see is actually him. 
the incarcerated and the marginalized, the poor and the downtrodden, the victims of oppression and injustice. Whatever we do to the least of them, whatever we do for the least of them, we do to him, we do for him. Tomorrow, when I go to work, the only thing I will see of Jesus is everyone I meet. The patients I see and their families, the colleagues I see, the security guards, the environmental service workers, they are all I will know of Jesus tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. The same is true for all of us. Whoever you see and however you see them, they are all you will see of Jesus tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And how we treat each other, what we choose to do together, will be all that we will see of the kingdom of heaven. It will determine if we build Jerusalem out of these dark satanic mills of the pandemic. As a people who profess to follow Jesus, we have a story to tell those people we encounter. It is best told by our actions and not by our words. If everyone we encounter is welcomed into our heart as we would welcome Jesus, then we do indeed follow him. If everyone huddling in makeshift shelters on the other side of an imagined border is told, welcome, we've been waiting for you, as we say we await his second coming, then we do indeed follow him. If everyone living poorly housed, poorly fed, poorly educated is told, no, wait, let us build something better and more just together, then we are indeed following him. If we wish to see Jesus, we will see him where he told us to look, in the eyes of everyone you meet, and caring for them with all our heart, mind, and soul will reveal our true nature our full identities to one another. This, I would say, is the nature of our faith and our path. Everything else, liturgies, creeds, doctrines, scripture, is commentary. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Amen.